In Matthew 3:11, John the Baptist is prophesied. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoe I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, almost always, when we consider John as the Old Testament, the last Old Testament prophet, which he was, though recorded in the New Testament, we emphasize his introductory phrase, Behold the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world. And this is quite proper and quite right. But having said this, nevertheless, we must not forget that this is a promise equal to that one. John's prophetic message is not one at this point, it is two. Behold the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world, and he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. This is an equal promise. Uh, with behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. In Matthew 3, 16, 17, and 4, 1, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. It was a purposeful thing. Here we have now the statement of the moment has arrived, which John the Baptist has said, as we shall see in John, would arrive, where Jesus himself is baptized by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is baptized in Jordan, but immediately with this, there is the baptism of the Spirit, and Jesus is then led by the Spirit, under the direction of the Spirit, up into the wilderness. So here we have Jesus being led by the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 12:17 through 21, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, and then he reaches back and he quotes what we've already read from Isaiah 42, 1 through 3, and he applies it to himself. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. But this begins here with a statement again, I will put my spirit upon him. So Jesus reaches back into the Isaiah passage, applies it to himself, and in doing so, a sense to the fact that it is in, as the Spirit is placed upon him that he will show judgment to the Gentiles. A very remarkable passage. In 1228, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come upon you. He does not say here, as a direct didactic statement, that he is casting out the demons by the Spirit of God, but if the statement would have no meaning read any other way. 
So he is saying here specifically that his casting out of the demons is by the is by the Holy Spirit. Then in Mark 1, Mark 1, 10 and 12, we have a repetition of his being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, but with some additional with an additional note. And straightway Coming up out of the water, he saw the, the, uh, he saw the heavens open, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And then, and immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. This word immediately here is an addition. Seems to me it isn't just an incidental detail, but it gives, gives a different feeling here. There is registered here not some sort of passive leading, but, an, but a very active leading. There is an immediacy about the leading. The Holy Spirit takes him immediately, and taking, taking him immediately, there is this emphasis upon uh, an act of activity, I would say, by the Holy Spirit in reference to Christ. Turning to Luke, Luke 3.22. And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. So again we have the declaration of the Holy Spirit descending upon him. It's picked up immediately after the genealogy and carried on in 4.1. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. There is again an additional note here. He was full of the Holy Spirit. This is a very striking phrase because, of course, later in the New Testament, it is quite pointed out to us that in the imperative that we are to be full of the Spirit. So Jesus is declared here with an additional note now, led up, led up immediately, this act of activity of the Spirit, and Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. In 4, 14 with 32, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee in 32, and they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. The connection, here, of course, here is the word power. They were astonished because his word was with power. But we are told in the 14th verse that it was the power of the Holy Spirit. So that which they were really observing of his power is designated to be the power of the third person of the Trinity. In 4, 18 and 19, And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Here is where he reaches back again and quotes now from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and so forth. Not to go into other portions of the teaching here, but just his taking this to himself the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. I would emphasize the word because. You can read this now in reverse. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor. Therefore, it is quite obvious that his preaching of the gospel of the poor was uh, through the Holy Spirit. There is this cause and effect relationship. 
Also in Luke 10.21, also in Luke 10.21, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit, as it reads in the King James translation, but some of the other translations will have that which is the accurate translation, and that is, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced by the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. It isn't he is rejoicing in his own spirit. He is rejoicing by the Holy Spirit when he cries out, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. So what we find now is a different note. Just as he was led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, so his rejoicing was by the Holy Spirit. In John 1... 32 and 33. And John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode upon him, and I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said to me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. Now, here you have designated three baptisms, and they must not be confused. The first is John's baptism with water. The second is Jesus' baptism with the Spirit. And the third is Jesus baptizing us by the same Spirit. Now this, if I were doing it logically, I would have put this back at Matthew 3.11. I have said there that John makes two equal prophecies. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. But here there is an entirely different note added. Not entirely different, but rather it's made almost different by the strong addition in John. The one who is baptized by the Spirit and the Spirit remains on him He is the one who will baptize you by the Spirit. So there is a specific relationship. John is baptized, says Christ is is baptized by the Holy Spirit. He will, in prophecy, baptize you by the Holy Spirit. So the Christ baptism by the Spirit and his sending the Holy Spirit To baptize us is a specifically related situation. It's totally related. In 334, and I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. I'm sorry. In 334, I read 134. For he whom God has sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. This would certainly be equivalent to what we have also already seen in the statement he is full of. He was full of the Holy Spirit. There was no limitation. There was nothing, there was nothing in Christ himself, nothing in Christ himself which caused a limitation of the fullness and the power of the Holy Spirit upon him. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit without measure. Now turning to the book of Acts, we find this continues in Acts 1-2. 
This is after his resurrection, until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. There are two possible ways to look at this, and either one, it makes no difference uh, in our study this morning. One would be that it's speaking of all the commandments he has given, being as through the Holy Ghost. The other would be that this was specifically so in a unique way uh, after the resurrection. I personally think it is the first. That you can say here that all the commandments which Christ has given was through the Holy Ghost. So you have a, he is full of the Holy Ghost, he rejoices in the Holy Spirit. He casts out demons in the whole, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, he gives his commandment through the Holy Spirit. You just go on and on and on. I won't make a recapitulation here of, the, uh, of what it is said, but trust we have it strongly in our mind. Now this note is not lost at this place, but the early church, obviously in its preaching, made an emphasis concerning this. Because in the book of Acts, in the 10th chapter, in the 38th verse, Acts 10:38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the, of the devil, for God was with him. You will notice here that there is a uh, they are bearing testimony to the thing we have been observing in the gospel. And that is, the early church says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, and then he went about and did good. So in the early test church, the testimony was this, the re- of concerning the relationship of Christ during the incarnation at the, when he was on the earth and the Holy Spirit. We have, I won't read it, um, but you could, if you're making notes, you should write down 1 Timothy 3.16 also to consider in this regard. And then 1 Peter 3.18, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also hath once for all suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. A declaration here of the relationship of the Holy Spirit to his resurrection. And this tremendous passage is a passage of Christ's death once for all, that he might bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. It isn't his spirit being quickened. That isn't what it's saying. It is he is quickened by the spirit. The resurrection is pointed out here to have a relationship to the work of the Holy Spirit. And then finally in this list, in Hebrews 9, 14. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
of how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. This is a tremendous and overwhelming passage, and it seems to me the key passage in this, the, the summary. It could be the introduction to a, uh, a message like this, but it certainly also is a perfect summary. How did Christ offer himself without spot to God? This is the word the spot can be translated false. This is the way he offered himself sinless to God. It was through the Holy Ghost. It was not because of his eternal purity as the second person of the Trinity. It is the true man offering himself without spot to God, without fault. Through the Holy Ghost, it was by his relationship to the Holy Spirit, his not grieving the Holy Spirit at any point, all these things, his not standing in the way of the operative work of the Spirit, his willing the will of the Father always, and the Holy Spirit is not hindered, and so he was able to offer himself without fault to God. Now returning to 2 Kings, which we read for our responsive reading. 2 Kings 2, 7 through 15. I want to read this extended passage again. Second Kings 2, 7 through 15. And the fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and they two stood by Jordan, that's Elisha and Elijah. Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they two went over on dry ground. And it came to pass, when they were gone over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I should do for thee, before I be taken up from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a... And it seems to me that all too often we get a wrong impression here. In the, from the King James translation, one could take the impression he's asking for twice as much of the spirit that was upon Elisha. Uh, but this is not it, surely. The word double here would be related to uh, the French word do. It is the carbon copy of. It is the same as. It's not a double in the sense of twice as much, but the same. A total duplication. Let the same thing, the same portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing, nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken up from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and part of the both asunder and Elijah was taken up by a whirlwind of the heaven. And Elijah thought, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. 
And he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. And he took up the mantle of Elijah, which fell from him, and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. Now, when they were coming the other way, Elijah had taken this cloak, smitten Jordan, and Jordan had rolled back. Now, having asked for a double, for the double of the Spirit, and having had a promise through the mouth of Elijah the prophet that if he saw him be taken up, he would have it. Now, having seen him taken up, here he stood with the same mantle in his hand. He had the promise of God through the prophet Elijah. And he stands there by the river. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him. A tremendous moment. And he smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elijah went over. Because he did have a double of the Spirit. This is a proof to Elisha. It's more than a proof. It's the statement. God had kept his promise. And when the sons of the prophets which were to view at Jericho saw him, they said, The Spirit of Elijah doth rest upon Elisha. And so he did, so it's true. Now then, it seems to me this is an exact parallel to the situation in the New Testament. In Acts 1.5, in Acts 1.5, Jesus is speaking, for truly, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Verse 8, But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And I always emphasize, though it is not in the Greek, the force is in the Greek, and then ye shall be witnesses unto me. Not before. Don't you dare stir from Jerusalem and begin to be a witness until the power of the Holy Spirit is upon you. Don't you dare do it in yourself. Is Jesus work. Wait. And when the power of the Holy Spirit is upon you, then is the moment to be the witness. Now, of course, immediately the Holy Spirit came upon them in the second chapter. Now, the order then is like this. In John 1, 29, let's turn back. In John 1, 29, the last of the Old Testament prophets is speaking. The next day John, seeing Jesus, cometh unto him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Then he gives the prophecy, 32 and 33. And John bore record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and a boat upon him, and I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now these two are together. Behold the Lamb of God, taketh away the sin of the world. He shall be baptized, he will be baptized himself, and then he will baptize. This order is put a little bit sharper into perspective in John 7, 38 and 39. John 7, 38 and 39. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his innermost part shall flow rivers of living water. 
But this he spake of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, which they that believed on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now putting this together, we have the threefold step. Christ is, to, is baptized. Christ dies as the Lamb of God. Then Christ baptizes his people with the Holy Spirit. And then comes the rivers of living water. And this is the order. This is the order. Christ is baptized by the Spirit. It's the beginning of his public ministry. Christ dies as the Lamb of God. Christ baptizes with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and outflows the rivers of living water. The simple fact is that the Scripture insists to us that everyone who accepts Christ as his Savior immediately has this Holy Spirit. There is no such thing as a born-again Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, 9, But ye are not of the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. And if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. There is no such thing as a person accepting Christ as their personal Savior without being indwelt by the Holy Spirit any more than there is such a thing as a person truly accepting Christ as their Savior without being justified. When a man accepts Christ as his Savior, he is justified and he is just as certainly indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is emphasized a little bit more in 14 through 16, and as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. No Holy Spirit, no sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received once for all the spirit of adoption. There's no such thing as losing it on this side of the cross. But ye have received once for all, this is the same word here, the same thought here, uh, as, um, as Christ dying once for all. The spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So therefore, if I have accepted Christ as my Savior, I have the same Holy Spirit in whom and by whom Christ as a true man did all the things that have been spoken of above in all these references we have read. In this sense, each of us in this way is Elijah, or is Elisha, considering Christ as Elijah. Now then, coming to the question, looking to the future, how do we keep on? How do we keep on? We keep on through the centrality of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And there's no other way to keep on. As we look to the future, as last Sunday we looked to the past, how do we keep on? We keep on in the only way that 
ever one can keep on if one is going to keep on in the spirit and not in the flesh. The centrality of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the deepening of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. There's no such thing as a static situation. There is no fullness once for all. This is a living relationship to a living per person. The centrality of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the deepening of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Then there are the rivers, the rivers of living water. There's no other way for there to be the river. Not a trickle, not a drop of dew upon a thirsty leaf, as it were, but rivers of living water. And as we examine these passages, which of course we can't do this morning for lack of time, yet it is quite obvious that it's not talking here about any special gifts of the Spirit. The New Testament does speak about special gifts of the Spirit in the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is not in regard to the special gifts, primarily at least. It is in regard to the Spirit's general gifts to all the people of God. There are special gifts of the Spirit for the whole church. There are some called to this and some called to this in the whole church to be shared. But there are the general promised gifts of the Spirit. Promised as certainly as heaven is promised. Promised as certainly as heaven is promised. General gifts of the Spirit that are to all Christians at all places at all times as far as the promise of these gifts are concerned. That is what is involved in this. This morning's message is not dealing at all with any concept of those special callings under the Holy Spirit for the good of the whole church. I'm talking about those things which are the absolute promise of Jesus Christ to every born-again child of God. A promise that is just as definite and universal and absolute as the promise of heaven to the man who has taken Jesus as his Savior. Rivers of living water. This is the problem of the church in every generation, and I said it is the problem. I would say that all other problems are an outcome of this problem. This is the problem of the church in every generation. And we cannot just abstract that. It is the problem, and I say the problem, in our individual lives and in our work as a group. Orthodoxy, separation, a Calvinistic view of the scriptures, as much as we believe they are right, are never to be seen as an absolute end in themselves. They are not an absolute in them, end in themselves. They are that which, when we believe it, we have the truth. And having the truth, the doors should be open to the reality of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Orthodoxy is important. I am convinced every year of my life more that an emphasis on the purity of the visible church and therefore a real separation from apostasy is important. Our form of doctrine in these other areas are 
This is important. But they are not an absolute end in themselves. They are a vestibule. They are a door that should throw us open in the area of truth to this, to this reality of which I have been speaking. The reality of the work of the Holy Spirit in our individual and corporate lives. Just this morning as I awoke, I reached over and I took a little devotional thing for today that was written by a man with whom I have been acquainted for a number of years who lives in Philadelphia. And I just happened to notice this, and I read it to you. On this Lord's Day, we should approach our God with thanksgiving, and we would joyfully bless his holy name. As we engage in public and private worship, we would not do so in a cold, routine manner. We would not go to church as if we were only spectators watching others perform. And in conclusion, no, we will not today be mere onlookers at the worship of our God. We will enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. I would say that his balancing here is good. We are not to be spectators, not just at the Sunday morning worship service, not just in seeing, well, this man who is unsaved except Christ as his Savior, Will this backslider come back to Jesus Christ? Will this service do this or that, or this man do this or that? Not only at the Sunday morning worship service, at the prayer meeting, at other portions of our work individually and together, but not spectators also in the larger sense. We are to be a people possessed. That's what we're to be. We are to be a possessed people, not spectators, the very opposite, a people possessed by the Holy Spirit. Surely it would be impossible at this place not to read Ephesians 5.18. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. A people possessed. This is to be the church of Jesus Christ. Anything less is less than it should be. The very contrast of being a spectator. It is never they. It is always me and we. In conclusion, because it is this special Lord's Day morning, what is our calling? I would say to you upon all my, as deep as I can say it, I believe that reaching back for 30 years now in the United States, but equally in Europe and on the mission fields of the world, there have been in general two camps of Bible-believing Christians. The first camp has put a tremendous emphasis on the holiness of God and therefore separation from apostasy with a true and proper emphasis on the purity of the visible church. This is group number one. 
Group number two has put a tremendous emphasis, and these are the larger number, a tremendous emphasis on the love of God, and therefore have put evangelism at the center. And evangelism at any cost, and at the cost of compromise, at a cost of anything, evangelism at the center. And it is my personal feeling and study, having gone through these 30 years, that a mission field after mission field in Europe, England, United States, it is the same. In general, the evangelicals stand divided into these two forces and have done so for 30 years. May we believe in both. The holiness of God with a resulting emphasis on holiness in doctrine and in life, including an emphasis on the purity of the visible church. And a love of God, therefore a strong emphasis on loving him first, loving each other, and loving with compassion the lost. Brethren, beloved, as we look to the future this morning, I would say with all the force that is in me, what we need is a continuing work of the Holy Spirit individually and in our midst. In order that we may have both of these simultaneously without choice. There is no reason to choose between them. To choose between them and have one without the other is to be in the flesh. To put an emphasis on the purity of doctrine or life, the purity of the visible church without an emphasis on the love of God and the exhibition of the love of God is fleshless. To put an emphasis on the love of God without an emphasis on the purity of the teaching of the doctrine of the church, visible church, evangelism in this framework may see souls saved, but it is fleshless. What we need by the grace of God is not to minimize either and not to put one above the other. The love of God is not to be seen as primary above the holiness nor the holiness above the love. These are equally presented in the scripture and they're to be equally exhibited by ourselves by the grace of God simultaneously. There must be the emphasis on the holiness of God and the love of God and the exhibition of these as a simultaneous thing and this is impossible in ourselves. It is perfectly possible to put a strong emphasis on purity by ourselves. It is a perfectly easy thing equally by ourselves to put a single emphasis upon the love of God if it begins to take the form of compromise, no matter how we dress it. But what cannot be done, except in the power of the Holy Spirit, as a simultaneous exhibition, though it will not be perfect, in the individual and then the group, the simultaneous exhibition of the love of God and the holiness of God together. This cannot be done in the flesh. It is beyond. Some of you have heard me use the illustration, which I used a number of years ago rather frequently, but I would use it again. 
that if I had awakened this morning, if we came to this building this morning as Bible-believing Christians, and we opened our New Testaments, and we found that there no longer was there that God had removed all emphasis in the New Testament on prayer and on the Holy Spirit, not removing it the way the liberal removes it, but really God removing it, so there it was gone. No more was there an emphasis on prayer, no more an emphasis uh, on the Holy Spirit. If I awoke this morning and as a Bible-believing Christian, it wasn't there, so this wasn't my promise anymore. And therefore, at noon today, with the plank striking, striking of the village clock, we no longer functioned on the basis of the promises of prayer and no longer functioned on the basis of the promise of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If I stop this, what difference would it make from the way I and we lived yesterday when the promises were there? And I think we would have to say flatly that in much of our lives and in much of the church it would make no difference whatsoever. None whatsoever. We function, we act as though the promises of prayer and the promises of the Holy Spirit were not there. Overwhelmingly so we do, and may God help us. Our call in the present situation in which we are is a simple one. An ever-deepening work of the Holy Spirit individually and corporately. But His power, His fruit, might show forth in our lives that simultaneously, not only in our words but our life, there should be showed forth the holiness of God and the love of God. And, oh, brethren, beloved, from such a situation, nothing can happen except rivers of living water. Nothing can happen. It will not be perfect, but this does not change the call. In examining the relationship of Christ and the Holy Spirit, if Christ, the eternal Son of God, went on earth in the incarnation as a true man, depended so on the Holy Spirit, if Christ has promised his same Holy Spirit as he has in Acts 1, 5, and 8, and this is true, if this is so, then if we believe the God who exists, if we believe the God who exists, how can we be content to live on a lesser level? I think we live in a climactic moment of the history of the church. It would be my personal belief that if the church goes on in its, this division of which I spoke and in its poorness, if it does not return to the reality of the leadership and the power of the Holy Spirit with compromise on one side and a lack of livingness and God's love on the other, if this is true, 30 years from now, the circle of Bible-believing Christians in the world will be smaller than it is today. Just as standing here in 1964, the number of Bible-believing Christians in proportion, not just to the general world population, but our, our Western world, 
is less in proportion than it was 30 years ago, and the whole influence of Christianity is less upon the total external situation than it was 30 years ago. We are in a much poorer position than we were 30 years ago. And if I understand the thing right, unless the church returns to the leadership and the power of the Holy Spirit, 30 years from now it will be much worse again. Increase not in a matter of arithmetic, but in a geometrical fashion. It's my personal feeling. In such a situation, what is our future? What is our calling? As we come to our first worship service in this place, by God's grace, let us, as we begin worshiping in this chapel, be a people of prayer and a people of the reality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is the only way to keep on. There is no other way. And brethren, beloved, in the name of the Lord Jesus, I would say to myself and to you, this is our call. Shall we pray together?